And I want to start off this evening by giving you a chance to um, ask any questions, uh, make any topics of discussion over our material. From really the last two weeks, this is going to finish, largely finish up uh, the third area, which we're going to talk about is the image of God in the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ and its impact on our relationship with God. Uh, two weeks ago, re- recall, we talked about a creation. What was the image of God like before sin? What did it entail? Uh, and then last week, we looked at the enhancement on man um, after sin. We often think man was less after sin, but God stated otherwise that once we ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, we added a divine attribute to us, um, and therefore our moral condition did not deteriorate, it improved. It was, not a de- it was not a deletion of moral value, of moral capability, but it was an addition of moral capability, which means that um, the Calvinist model that dead is dead and therefore uh, you can't know right from wrong is directly uh, problematic with, well, before we sinned, we didn't have a knowledge of good and evil. And now we do. Um, how can you say we are morally less when we have had a moral addition to us at the garden? And that's not me saying that. It's not theology saying that. It is God saying that. It's not Satan. Satan did say that to the Eve, and Eve understood they would make her wise. Um, but God said they have become like us, knowing good and evil. Unless they then take and eat of the, of the tree of, of life, they have, they never, they have to live in this state perpetually. Um, we are going to ban them from the garden. So God himself affirms that man had a moral improvement, a moral addition with sin. So sin did not destroy the image-bearing. It marred it. It soiled it. um, But it did not destroy it. And in fact, in the moral category, we became superior. We actually added to our moral capability. Which, by itself, just that one thing we studied last week, totally undermines uh, a Calvinistic view of man that we are morally incapable and therefore Holy Spirit has to regenerate us irresistibly against our will or irregardless of our will so that we can then believe. The idea that we can't believe without, and we can't know good from evil without regeneration is contrary to just that one statement of God. Mankind has become like us knowing good from evil. And that is substantial. So, very dramatically different than what's largely being taught. So, do we still have authority in our sin? Do we still have the directive to have dominion, uh, to uh, subdue the earth, uh, be fruitful, multiply as well? Uh, Do we still have authority to exercise self-determination? Yes. Even as sinners? Yes. We still have that on a personal level because we still carry the inheritance of imageness 
granted it has been marred by our forefathers, specifically Adam. And so it does have some, sin did have a detrimental effect upon it, certainly. We talked about that last week. Um, but we want to press on now, unless you have more discussion on that area, into what the, what the situation is for once we become a believer, what is the state of that image-bearingness. Okay, any discussion, questions, comments? You've had an extra week to think about. I know I gave you the opportunity last week at the end, but you've had some time maybe to study on it or meditate on it. Any other comments, questions? Yes. Correct. And and even in that state, um, for example, Israel, when they're confronted with the prophets, said, no, we're going to keep doing what is right in our own eyes. Um, the dilemma isn't that we will choose good. It is that we have the capacity to know good, and therefore we can choose good. And that's what we're really dealing with is capability, not uh, practice. In other words, what will you choose? Well, we have a sin nature, so we will be drawn towards sin. But that, that enticement, that attraction towards sin does not mean I am incapable of understanding good from evil and doing good. And so even, you know, and so that's the basis of a conscience. That's the basis of guilt. Um, why do I feel guilty when I do wrong? Because I know it's wrong. Can that be destroyed? Yes, eventually it can be destroyed, but it's not destroyed immediately on birth um, because you do have a conscience. You know good from evil, and you know when you've done wrong, you feel guilty. When you've done right and you do good, you feel better. You feel good about yourself. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's acquired you salvation. It's just that, well, I won this small victory. But that's the rarity. The norm is that we will do what is right in our own eyes um, and not what is righteous and we know is pleasing to God. And, and again, we're not denying the sin inheritance and the marring, what we are denying is that man is incapable of moral rightness or even the knowledge of, you know, because that's their statement, dead is dead. You are dead in your sins. You couldn't recognize a good thing if it slapped you in the face kind of thing, right? And that's their, that's Calvinist or Augustinian model that dead is dead and that you are incapable of doing any good. Um, when God says your capabilities have increased post-sin from what they were pre-sin, which, which is 180 degrees opposite, right? And it's a huge difference. So yeah, I'm not talking about what you will choose. Um, first of all, you have the right to choose. You exercise that, but you have informed choice now. Adam and Eve only knew that God didn't want them to eat it. They didn't understand right, they didn't know right from wrong, and that's why they were perfectly fine being naked and walking around and engaging creation as they were created. Um, and, but post-sin, now 
they said, oh, we're, we shouldn't be naked, we should be clothed. That indicates a moral compass that they now have that they didn't possess prior to that. And now they can make actions. What should have they done about their nakedness? What should have they done about it once they understood it? They should have gone to God and confessed their sin, and eventually God did cover them. They did need a covering. Once they have a moral knowledge, and their covering was insufficient, and that is a great picture of man trying to be good, earning salvation by good works. It's fig leaves. And God says, no, you need an animal skin to cover nakedness. To cover your sin, you need the slaughter an animal. It's the only way you get animal skin because you're not getting the skin of a viper, right? You're not getting a shedded uh, animal skin, right? You're getting a mammal skin covering. Uh, if you ever seen the skin of a snake, it's pretty much transparent. <laughs> so it's not going to cover anything uh, largely. And so you're looking about bloodshed. So the, the even the covering is signifying that. Okay. But yeah, their moral capacity improved. It did not, it wasn't destroyed by their sin. Any others? To me, that's a very obvious thing in the sin narrative in Genesis 3 um, that is completely overlooked in the whole discussion on man's capabilities. Any others? Once we establish man's self-determination, the authority, the right to self-determination as a divine gift, we now come to the exercise of that in terms of salvation. Okay? And now we are addressing... Can man evaluate the offer of God independently, as without God manipulating his response? In other words, God can come in and convict you, right? That's to activate your conscience and go even a little bit further than that. Conviction is a little stronger than just you have a bad feeling in your conscience. It's the weight of the penalty of sin being, that, being recognized. And so when we come to the application of what we saw in Genesis uh, in the creation account of what is the image and in the sin account of what it means to have the knowledge of good and evil, we recognize that part of self-determination is, well, now I, should, I can choose. Will I always choose evil? No. Our experience is evident that men generally will choose evil. How much evil do you have to choose to be a sinner? One, yeah. How many things do you have to steal to become a thief? One thing. How many lies do you have to tell to become a liar? One. And so, um, but, the, but just because I tell a lie once, does that mean I'm going to tell a lie all the time? Hopefully not. It could go that direction. Uh, and so uh, I, I can choose, and the world does choose sometimes, to abandon uh, error and sin and to do something better. The problem is if they do that outside of their relationship with Christ, 
They will rely upon us. I'm a better person now than I was. Self-improvement. If I can better myself, somehow God will look with favor upon me. And that kind of righteousness called self-righteousness. Okay, think about that term a second. Self-righteousness, God says, if you're trusting in your own righteousness, what does God say about that? It's like, it's sickening to him. Because your righteousness cannot undo your sin. You're just a sinner who's doing what is right on occasions. But you're trusting in that, and that cannot take away your sin. What takes away sin? The blood, the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no removal of sin. So I do wrong things, I realize it because I have an enhanced moral capacity. I say, that's wrong. I have guilt. I have consequences of my sin. I'm going, I, I don't like myself after doing that. I'm going to start doing things differently. I walk over here and I stop doing the bad things. I start doing, I'm starting, to, I want to be a nicer person. I want to obey the law. I want to be a good person. I want to help other people. I want to be this other person. And we, and we start saying, and then we, our statement is, well, I am not the person I used to be. I'm a nice guy now. And I start trusting in that. The problem is nowhere in that process have I acknowledged God. Nowhere in that process have I trusted in Jesus Christ. Nowhere in that process has any of my former sins gone away. In other words, they have not been forgiven. They have not been covered. They have not been propitiated for. And so they are still, I'm still carrying around that sin. And this is called self-righteousness. And again, we completely blow the Calvinistic, art, uh, uh, Calvinistic argument out of the water simply by Christ condemning self-righteousness. Does Christ condemn self-righteousness? Let me start there, maybe. Sure. Specifically whose? Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, uh, the leaders of the people. They were hypocrites. You know, you declare this, you walk this way, you do all this, um, but then you break these laws and you excuse yourself and you should have been keeping those and doing this is what God said. You should have done both uh, and not done one, ignored the other. And so... Self-righteousness, if it's condemned, listen to what you're condemning. They are doing what is right, but they are not believers. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound like dead is dead? You can't do anything right? No, they're doing right. The problem is they're trusting in their right, and so their righteousness becomes filthy, because it's trying to replace the righteousness of Christ with your own righteousness, and it's inadequate. But to say I'm not capable of doing right, or capable of knowing right, or choosing right, is wrong, in essence. So that goes back to our moral argument last week. So let's go to the Christian. So the Christian is confronted with their sin. You have the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which isn't just for Christians, it's for the whole world, right? That's what Jesus said, he'll convict the world in John chapter 16, I'll convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. 
So he convicts you. Now you have to respond. Now if the Holy Spirit convicts the world, who should get saved if the Holy Spirit is irresistible? And by the way, this goes right into next week, so we're going to start on Holy Spirit next. If man doesn't have a choice but to do evil, you are incapable of recognizing that, then what should be the response of all men to God's offer? Well, Calvinism is without God doing it unilaterally, without your permission or your assent, that it was pretty much the same thing, that you don't even have to comprehend it. Um, if he's going to do that unilaterally, then he has just overridden your will and it's, it doesn't really exist. Your will is a fabrication. It's a facade. It's, it's, it's pretend. Um, if he does it in cooperation with your will, it requires something of God. It requires him to do a pretty humiliating thing, and that is to offer you something and then let you choose whether to accept or reject it. So the Christian comes to this to this offer with a an image, a marred image, marred nonetheless, but an image there that is the authority to choose your own way. And now we come to God, and what do we do? Well, if you're becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, you are... Help me out. What are you doing? In terms of your will, what are you doing? You're surrendering it. You're submitting that will. And this is, this is the, and when we get to the Holy Spirit and we get to a couple of other studies down the road, they're all going to interlace. I can't detach any of these studies from one another, really, and we shouldn't try. Um, but So I'm going to, so we talk about surrender. In fact, in fact, we have a hymn, I Surrender All, right? That's the great invitational hymn of church history ever since it was written. Uh, I grew up that, you know, when the evangelists came, you sang that song every verse, sometimes three times over. You just kept singing it until people stopped going forward. And it was like, how many more times do I sing this? Sit down. You know, because it's that same person that's gone down the aisle every evangelism service, you know, and they have to make the trip again. And it's like, how many times do you have to go forward? And as we sing, I surrender all. I guess they only, I surrendered some. And then I, I surrendered some more. And then I surrendered a little bit more. And I don't know, eventually they got to surrender at all. After all those trips down the aisle. And so, um, as a young person, I'm like, oh, this is just emotive manipulation. I know that's a weird thing for like a high schooler to think, but that's what I thought. We're just manipulating people to sing this until they weep and go forward. Um, so we can get another notch on the salvation belt of this evangelist. Um, and especially when it's the same people I've seen go forward and, and there's just a lack of genuineness there. And so um, surrender is the term. Well, what does surrender mean? It means, well, in order for you to be able to surrender, you have to be in control of it. If it's something that you don't have control of, then it's not a surrender, right? You surrender. Even in a military setting of surrender, um, you're surrounded, you're outnumbered, you're down, you might be out of ammunition. You're in the fort, and the people say, issue the thing, just surrender. 
What are they implying that you have a right to choose? You can choose not to surrender and die. It is your right. You still hold the authority to decide your future. You can surrender and take a chance that this invading army might give you leniency, let you live, or they might you might surrender and they pluck out your eyes and torture you to death. Who knows? Um, they can do any of those things, but they're, you're just giving yourself at their disposal. So when we talk about the Christian commitment to Christ, we use the word surrender, and that word, as soon as you use that word, you are telling me that you believe you had the right to choose. Because you cannot surrender that which isn't yours. And so if we say that man doesn't possess the right of self-determination, then he can never surrender. Because he doesn't have anything to surrender. He doesn't have will over his life. So if everything I choose, everything I do is determined by God and eternally passed, or if you don't believe that, if you believe God is sovereign and everything I do is his will, whether he planned it or not, that's his will, um, then I, don't, I can't surrender to God because I don't own self-determination. So when we come to the Christian, it is essential that we understand that we have to, to own self-determination for us to surrender that. And for us to own self-determination means that God had to exercise self-control on his own part and limit his, his control of you. The only way for you to have self-control in, in the idea of self-determination, of having a true choice, do I follow Jesus or not, is for God to say, I'm not going to make that choice for you. Have you ever said that to someone? I say that regularly. People come to me for advice, and I say, well, I can't make the choice for you, but here's my advice. You're going to have to choose. It's disheartening when 90% of the time they choose to do what they want to do instead of the advice that they get. Because the advice I'm going to give you is right out of God's Word. I'm just going to say, well, this is what the Bible says. Because my opinion isn't really that much better than the next guy's. But when it's built on Scripture, then they go out and do what they want. And then I just kind of shrug my shoulders because I know what's going to happen, whether it's a week later, a month later, or sometimes it's an hour later. Oh, pastor, I didn't do what you told me to do. Now can you bail me out? And I'm like, well, it was your choice. And my kids know what that means. You live your choices. Live with it. There are consequences to bad choices. Well, as soon as we understand that we have choices and we have that liberty, that means God has to let us choose. And so I'm not going to sit there and say, I'm going to choose for you, okay? And so when, oh, what's one of the notes? Oh, I got a good one. Once Gerald proposes to Andrea, Andrea gives me a phone call. Pastor, what do I tell him? That really happened. I don't know where Gerald was. Was you we just hanging there waiting for the answer of the phone? She ran to her room. She ran into her closet. So she could call me and say, what do I tell them? I was like, Andrea, it's your choice. And I, she, I, she wanted my blessing. I, and I, obviously, obviously, they got married. So I didn't tell her no. 
And I didn't tell her, what are you, crazy? No, I, but she, it's her choice. I pray that's why I told you, right? Yeah. All right, well, what does that mean? That means that she possessed self-determination. Who you marry is up to you. Even if we lived in a society that did arranged marriages, um, the, which, by the way, if they'd done irregardless of either one of theirs uh, will, um, is a great uh, interference in a right they have of self-determination. Which is my argument with the people of India. I says you arrange marriages for your kids without consulting your kids, um, your adult children. You are violating something that God gave them, which is self-determination. Now, are children foolish? Are young adults foolish and make bad choices? Yes. Should I be trying to direct them away from bad choices? Absolutely. Um, but to overtake that is wrong when they're into adulthood. And again, for me, adulthood is like 12, 13 years old. Let them live their choices. And, uh, and that means that if you're going to choose that direction for your life, go live somewhere else. That's the consequence of making those choices. And yes, I've told that uh, to my children on occasions. And so, and not in jest. Not, I mean, genuinely, especially once they're, they're, once they're in their teen years, it's like, well, you can live anywhere you want. You know, um, you don't have to live here. These are my rules for my house. Um, you can be who you want to be, but not that while you're here living here. Um, but we don't override people's right to self-determination. And so I can't accept Jesus for my children. I can't make my children Christians. You know, the old adage, God doesn't have any grandkids. He only has kids. I can't make them believe just like I can't, I, I shouldn't even think of the concept that I'm going to override their right, because it's a divine right they have of self-determination. And this is why forced conversions, you ever heard of those? Forced conversions are so evil. Whether you're being forced to convert to Islam or to whatever else, forced, the idea of forced conversions, and by the way, Christianity, quote-unquote Christianity, practice that. Okay, when, when the conquistadores showed up here in this valley all the way down into Mexico, um, they did force conversions with their, they had their priests with them, and you're all now part of the Catholic Church, we're going to baptize you, do all this, you're now Christians, build this building, <laughs> put you into slave labor uh, to build our cathedrals, our churches. And forced conversions are are the end result, really, of denying a fundamental divine right of self-authority. Just as much as anti-conversion laws are that. So when we come to Christ, in order for us to have liberty to choose for or against Him, God has to hold Himself back. Can He control the will of man? Yes. Other men control the will of men. Or we wouldn't have something called forced conversions or forced marriages or forced anything else. Getting men to comply to, to the desire of someone else against their will is not really that hard. Even your children are pretty capable at it. Right? It's called manipulation. 
right? So our children, can children manipulate parents and grandparents into getting what they want? Oh, they know your heartstrings. They know what to pull to get you to do what they want to do. You know, I'm going to whine until you t- ah, until you give me what I want. Okay, that's manipulation. That is trying to cause someone else to do what they don't want to do because you want them to. So manipulating men isn't a difficult task, and it doesn't prove the sovereignty of God. In fact, it goes quite the contrary. It would prove an insecure and weak God if he had to force his will on the people. I consider any philosophy, any uh, philosophy of life or, or culture concept that has to be implemented by force to be necessarily weak. Because if it wasn't weak, they wouldn't need to force it. Because if it had strength and it had uh, just value to it inherently, people would be drawn to it. And that's the gospel. The gospel is so powerful that it doesn't have to overthrow the will of man. It is that attractive and it is that sensible, it is that powerful that men should desire after it. The fact that they don't is not necessarily means that they are incapable of recognizing how good it is. How many of you have had people say, why are you, you know, you're such a good person and I'm good, you know, and it's like, I like being around you because you're a nice person. We tell them about the gospel. They don't really accept the gospel, but they like being around us because we're nice people. Um, And you might say, well, how does that work? Well, they're in denial. It doesn't mean they're incapable. They recognize the value it's created in your life they just don't believe and they're not willing to submit, surrender to the fact that it could make that difference in their life. It means they're attached to something, usually their own pride, but perhaps some other part of life that they don't want to give up. Because the nature of the gospel is to surrender. But to surrender, you have to have authority first. And God, for us to have authority means God has to have humility of self-restraint in the area of sovereignty. So he's not going to make you get saved. We pray like that sometimes, Lord, bring them to yourself. Well, that's a Calvinistic prayer. It really is. When you, I find nowhere in the Bible where you're told to pray for unbelievers. I challenge you to find it. We're to pray for Christians to be bold in sharing Christ with people. We did that in our evangelism study and, and uh, evangelism in the end times, that um, overwhelmingly that is what God's word calls. Paul says, pray for me that I'll have open doors, that I'll have boldness, that I will share Christ with people. Um, the idea of praying people into heaven is a Calvinistic concept where you're asking God to override their will and, and be the uh, force them to salvation. And that's what the irresistible work of the Holy Spirit we're going to talk about starting next week, maybe if we get very far, get that far. Um, so you're going to have to have independent will to be saved. Otherwise, you have a weak and insecure God that is um, 
afraid, I'm going to use that word, um, it's insecure because he's going to offer you something and somehow it's going to hurt his feelings if you reject it. Well, it's going to hurt you if you reject it. Um, does God sorrow over your rejection? Yes, of course, because he loves you. And when a, a, a child rejects an offer from a parent that's going to be for their good, um, do we? is it hurtful? Yeah, it hurts us. It's painful, but we recognize that they have to live those consequences because I can't run their life. Because that's, a, again, I'm violating a fundamental divine right of man, and that is self-determination. And so God does that because he is secure in himself. He can offer you, and even and so when he comes to the promises, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. And he said that to Samuel. And they said, we want a king instead of God. Well, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They haven't rejected your sons. They've rejected me. And God is powerful enough and, and a deep enough and strong enough character to, to deal with rejection, okay? Um, Calvinist God can't, right? Because it has to be his will or nothing. Um, and that kind of sovereignty is, is weak and beggarly compared to a self-sovereignty that we're talking about. So once I accept Christ, do I, am I still in the image of God? I still have self determination. But look, Pastor, you just said, I've surrendered it to God. So now what? And this comes into the concept of eternal security. Um, the challenge is, and, and again, a lot of Arminians will focus on this in their arguments with Calvinists, and so, and we would tend toward that once we acknowledge self-determination, that doesn't go away once you surrender it because while God accepts that surrender, he recognizes that you still have an inherent right to take that back. You might say, "How if I've surrendered my, my self-determinating authority to God, how can I take that back? Because that's how strong in the nature of man is the image. The image and likeness of God is that while I surrender it, I still reserve it. And that is a weird thing to say. How can you reserve something for yourself that you've surrendered to someone else? Um, and so uh, that's because inherently that's what makes us humans. It is, it is pre-creation design. Part of the definition of humanness is bearing the image and likeness of God. And therefore, even when we say, I surrender to God and I submit my will to your God and I pray the prayer, not my will, but yours be done, this has to be a continuing prayer of your life. And for the Arminian, they would come in and say, well, if you you accept Christ, you can also reject him later on in your life. And to a certain degree, as, uh, and I, I have it as a temporal point, that's true. Uh, until you've, and, and I think there's evidence in God's word that says there, when you bear fruit, that there is endurance and now there is a different faith. And so we talked about that in John, going from belief to belief. And so in the believer, 
we have the necessity of understanding the nature of our design. We are des- part of our existence requires that. Now, what about in heaven? Can you choose to rebel against God in heaven? In your glorified state. Let me ask you this. Do you think you still have the knowledge of good and evil in heaven? Do you still bear the image and likeness of God in heaven? Yes. And so that's why this understanding is is the development. I believe when we get to heaven, we will be secure in this surrender. It is not the absence of authority of self-determination. It is the full surrender of it. That the process we call sanctification, the process of becoming holy, is a process of surrender. And the song, I Surrender All, I know I just made fun of it, but is accurate, but it is a statement of maturity that I am recognizing that there's more and more and more and more and more and more and more of my life that I really want God to be in charge of and me less in charge of, that I want to surrender more. And as I mature in Christ, I realize, well, I should be surrendering this to him. And that means that I am going to choose because I reserve authority over myself because God designed that for me. Okay, I'm not surrendering the right, I'm surrendering the will. I know that seems like semantics, but it's not. If I surrender my will, I will do what you want, but I reserve the right to choose. As I mature in Christ, I realize, well, I, he is faithful, he is trustworthy, he is the only one that doesn't let me down, he's the only uh, plan that ever works out. He's the only one that, that keeps his promises. Uh, he's the only one with, the, with all the power. And I grow in my knowledge of God, and thus I grow in what we call Christian maturity is really further surrender. We are truly surrendering more and more of our life to him. By the time you reach heaven in that capacity, where are you at in recognizing who God is? It's been perfected in you. That's why you're glorified. So now I have this fullness of of, uh, discovery, if you will, of God, and now I surrender my will to him. And I want to just share with you that will be an action that will characterize your existence for the balance of eternity. This is the greatest act of worship that man has available. This is the greatest tool of worship you have is surrender your will to God's will. For authority of self-determination is the greatest gift of God that he put in us to define us. Just because we are Christian doesn't mean we don't have it anymore that God's replaced that. Um, that's a gradual process of sanctification where I want his will more and more in my life and mine less and less. Um, But I still reserve that right. And that is critical because if that right is gone because I'm a Christian, then, first of all, I can't explain sin anymore, Christian sinning, that doesn't make sense. And and secondly, um, I lose 
value of worship. I can't worship God as well because I'm robotic. Right? And so even in glory, you will have an intact self-determination will. You say, well, can I rebel against God in glory? I, I don't know. Tell me where it says that in the Bible. Satan was in God's presence, and he rebelled. You might say, Pastor, that's deep scary. I get to heaven and lose heaven? Um, well, we'll have life forevermore, but I, I assume that if you stop drinking the river of life because you want to rebel, that that's... But realize, after a thousand years on a perfect earth, men rebel against God. Um, and so, uh, am I proposing that this is going to happen? Um, no, I'm just saying the capacity to have that is real. And it doesn't go away once we get into heaven. We will be in God's presence, we'll be glorified, perfected, fully cleansed, and we'll be in an idyllic environment where there is no temptation to sin and in our focus. But if we lose our right to choose, we lose our ability to worship. And that connection, I think, is, is lost on a lot of people. As a believer, I, I continually surrender to God. This is my act of worship. I sacrifice, I give up. I want to I give that up because I want to serve my king instead of my own interests. I want to serve his kingdom rather than my estate. I don't want to build my estate. I want to build the kingdom of God. I want to do what is pleasing to God that we saw you know, I don't want to displease God. I don't want to invoke His anger on me. Not because I'm a f just afraid of getting punished or the consequences or the chastening, but I truly want to cooperate with God. I want to do that. And that wanter is my greatest act of worship. To put that into practice in my life. But before... I got saved. I didn't have the power to do that. And now with the Holy Spirit's power, and we're going to talk about that. This is the natural extension of this chapter on the what man is like into the next one. Uh, with that power intact now, we um, can serve him if we want to serve him. But for the Christian, you still have self-determination. Does that mean I am insecure in my salvation? Um, if you simply say, once saved, always saved, if that's your motto, um, then I would say, yeah, it destroys that motto. If you're going to say, if I have been saved and truly saved and developed and matured in my walk with God to the point where I enter security, um, then no, it cooperates with that model. But if your idea is that, well, I prayed this one prayer back then, I got baptized, so it doesn't matter how I live the rest of my life, it doesn't have, matter my attitude, it doesn't matter my decisions, um, I'm still saved. Well, um, yeah, I don't see that. I don't see that principle in God's Word. Um, he who endures to the end will be saved, the Bible says. And so we're going to be talking about faith at the end of the next chapter. Uh, again, I, I, I 
cannot unweave these things. So I have to talk about Holy Spirit and I have to talk about these other things. But in terms of God's humility to give us self-determination, he holds back. He doesn't decide who's going to get saved. He doesn't even decide who's going to be convicted because he convicts everybody. His offer of salvation is to everyone because everyone has inherent in their design of who they are the image and likeness of God, though marred by sin. They still have that image and likeness, that self-determining authority that God will not override. He is not an Indian giver is the old phrase. That's pretty culturally charged, isn't it? Um, it's kind of funny because we are the Indian giver. We gave the Indians all these things and took it back. So I don't know why we said they were Indian giver. Anyway, I don't know how I got on that. Uh, God doesn't take it back. He put it in there. He gave his promise. That's by definition what it means to be human, is to be in the image and likeness of God. We added a capacity to that. That doesn't go away. And so now for the rest of humanity's existence, we know the knowledge of good and evil. So do we have the knowledge of good and evil in heaven? Sure. The idea that we don't have any memory of that and somehow we'll, we'll be in this blissful state of ignorance, we'll go back to being um, without the knowledge of good and evil is really foreign to the Bible. If we go back to that state, then we won't understand the value of Christ. And submitting to Christ every day is our worship. That's what it means to worship, is to wake up in the morning and say, I surrender. As we saw last week in the psalm, I'll serve you, my king. I'll worship you, my God. I'll walk with you, my Lord. And we make that choice every day, and I expect I'll make that choice for all eternity, that that is my greatest act of worship, is surrendering to him something he gave to me. And so we have to keep it intact. And so it's not that once I pray that prayer, now whatever happens in my life is God's fault. Because I gave my life to Jesus. And so now every choice I make must be Jesus' will. No, you still have an intact authority of self-determination, and therefore you're still responsible for how you use it, which is why we have all these directives in God's Word directed at Christians. You need to walk differently. You need to make better choices. You shouldn't be living like you used to live. You used to live like that. You shouldn't live like that anymore. Well, what doesn't that tell you that you have self-determination? You choose whether you walk in righteousness or whether you want to walk like the world. Why would you want to go back to that when you brought, God has brought you so far? But you can. Can means capability. You can. You still are capable. And I'm, my contention is, even in heaven, I don't see how we can get there and not have capacity to self-determination. Now, this is like the last chapter of that I haven't even started writing yet. So I'm jumping way ahead. Well, I did write. I wrote one sentence. <laughs> yeah, I, I, have, I have four chapters. I have one sentence written. I did one of them yesterday. And they're really hard. And I don't think I'm going to get them done before I get to them in this. I can't write that fast. Um, so I'm going to probably interrupt this somewhere and then have to come back to it. Or just teach it and then write it and not be able to give you chapters written. 
Any comments, questions while it's fresh in your mind? I'll give you a little time to delve into that. We will spend a lot of time next week just answering any, addressing any issues that that might bring up in your mind. A lot of what I talked about tonight is not extensively written in the chapter. You say, where is this in his book? Um, you're not missing three pages. It's just not fully developed. I think it's going to come out. You're going to see it more in the next chapter of Holy Spirit, of how you relate to Holy Spirit. Um, and, uh, and we're going to see it in other chapters of how you relate to the holiness of God. Uh, you're going to see the will of man supported through the balance of my work. Um, because this is the, I think, next to Jesus Christ, this is the this is the highest expression of God's humility, is to share His likeness with man. And so I can't walk away from this having written this chapter. It's going to keep coming up all the way through the rest of the, the balance of the study. Um, the highest expression of His humility is Jesus Christ. No, no. No question. There's a great gulf between that one and number two. But number two, I believe, uh, in terms of his exercise of humility, is granting us his image and likeness, the authority, the right of self-determination. And that makes forced conversions evil. That makes no conversion laws evil. That makes slavery evil. That makes... Um, your children manipulating you to make you do what they want and not what you want to do, evil. Yeah, it puts in the same category, doesn't it? Whenever we try to override other people's will by coercion, that's why coercion is against the law, right? Isn't coercion a crime? Guy asked my attorney. My cop is gone. I don't know where she went. Coercion is a crime. Okay? Um, that's why blackmail is a crime. Um, because they're violating a very fundamental gift of God that defines part of the definition of man is the freedom of self-determination that shouldn't be infringed upon, not by governments, not by country, not by companies, uh, not by religious organizations. It just shouldn't be. And I, if God doesn't do it, we shouldn't be doing it either. Is Satan willing to do it? Oh yes, the demonic are more than happy to do that, and we call that demonic possession. Okay, and that's why Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about next week, or in two weeks if we have a lot of discussion next week, Holy Spirit, fit, uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit is different than demonic possession for that very reason. And that we're going to discuss when we get to the chapter on Satan and demons. And, and how it how God's humility is evident in their existence and activity. Okay. If you think on something because it's fresher in your mind tonight, you head home or you're thinking about it in the middle of the night like I do, just jot some notes down, stick them in your Bible. I'd be, I'll be ecstatic to discuss them next week. Uh, and don't be surprised that if those kind of questions come up that I have to then add it into the work I've already done. Um, that's what I did when I went through Revelation. Um, when I get input, it, I edit my book, and sometimes it added, on one occasion, it added an entire chapter because one man asked me one question. And I had to write a whole chapter just to address it.
because it wasn't something I had previously dealt with. Okay? So don't feel like they're not important. They're, they're, I, I really genuinely want your input and meditation on that. Um, what, we, what you just got taught is radically different than what even non-Calvinistic pastors tend to teach because we're so influenced by Calvinistic doctrine, Augustine doctrine for so many centuries that we don't even realize that we aren't um, we don't even realize how Calvinistic our verbiage is and our philosophy or our theology of, of man is. Okay, yes. Yep. Isn't that incredible? Um, he was surrendered to God to do God's will. That's why he came, right? I say, well, he is God. But he says, I have the power laid down. I have the power to take it up. But I'm going to pray this prayer in the garden. And so just because I, he prays the prayer, not my will but yours be done, doesn't mean he loses self-determination. He doesn't lose the power. He doesn't lose the authority. We'll put the word authority in there. Okay. And so um, could Jesus have called 10,000 angels and gotten him down off the cross. Yes. He had self-determination. He could have done that. And he would have not have been wrong in doing it. He, um, our salvation, the whole predicate of it is not that it was the only thing, only good thing, it was the only thing God could do. It was God chose to express his love in us and that he could have chosen to just destroy us all or let us all go our own way um, and still been justified. Okay, so we'll have a great time. Come up with some passage. If you think you find a verse that 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 proves the opposite of what I just said or what just was just taught or what I've written, I would be glad to have that. And if you want to send me a text, email, um, call, phone call, throughout the week, if you come across something like that, I would be glad to receive those. Um, I do not view these as an attack um, because I recognize that there's not a lot of um, engagement in some of this because it's, it's been forgotten in most of our theology texts neglected at least. Okay. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this time spent in just who you are and what you've done and how you've made us. And Lord, uh, thank you for the reminder tonight of the necessity for us day by day. And sometimes, Lord, we need it hour by hour to remind ourselves that we are surrendered to you and that you still give us that, recognize and, and reserve that right of us to choose um, on a daily basis. And now we um, have a privilege of choosing to please you um, by the power of your spirit derived from the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We marvel at so much that you've done for us. We marvel at what we anticipate in your presence. We pray that you might find us walking in your way till your return. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.